This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name my is... Name. <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a... A feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Richard Sari is a wildlife conservationist professional. He's been in the wildlife conservation game pretty much his whole life. Uh, 30 years, 35 years. Um, our paths crossed probably about 20 years ago when we were both uh, in the Skakuza area of Kruger National Park. What you hear from Richard is that he is pro-wildlife. End of story. He wants to use every available tool in the toolbox to protect wildlife. He's not pro-hunting. He's not anti-hunting. He's not pro-ecotourism. He's not anti-ecotourism. He is pro-wildlife conservation. And because of that fact, he wants to look at everything objectively. How do you make each activity more sustainable? And you'll hear us hit on three elements of sustainability. Ecological, social, and economic. And that's what we have to look at every activity that is forwarding wildlife conservation. In those three pillars, those three lenses, whatever you want to look at it at. This is a hard-hitting conversation in which Richard really lays out the reality 
of wildlife conservation. So it's funny how small this world is and that when we got connected and uh, we started thinking about like, what do you do? Mm. What I've done, research, education. And it seems like we were in the same place. Same time. In Kruger, yeah. same time, 22 years ago. Gosh, we must be old buggers. Uh, and uh, I'll tell you what, I, I honestly think I know the, 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 the probably the place and the time that we interacted. And I didn't tell you this before we started the podcast, but there was a, and I'm sure they still do it today. There was a science like symposium held in Skakuza. Yeah, it was the first one. Network. It was the first one. And it was with the River Savannah's Boundaries program was involved, heavily involved, and everyone came together. I remember speaking in the auditorium. I was super nervous. It was like my first presentation ever about ecotones and their influence on um, sort of uh, it was a, a width, um, breadth relationship down a flay and how that uh, changed with the, the gradient of the landscape. So a steeper slope meant a smaller ecotone. A, you know, a, a gentler slope made a larger ecotone anyway. And I remember Kevin Rogers saying, oh, you did pretty good. And that night, I think, and Louis Ulofia, the section ranger of Sitting was actually present. And I very distinctly remember him and I chopping through close to a bottle of Jamison's that <laughs> evening together. That sounds Louis, like Louis. <laughs> and uh, the stories he told me that night... I have seared into my brain. Oh. <laughs> were, you can imagine what Louis told me that night. Probably not fit for consumption on here. Uh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, well, I typically do a very good, poor job of introducing people, but this time I'm going to do a really good job. Uh, Richard Sowry, uh, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. I'm excited about this conversation, specifically because I'm excited about hard-hitting conversations. And I know you're the kind of person that is not going to hold any punches and just deliver the truth. And that's what we like to talk about. We like to push the boundaries of, you know, what is the truth out there from a wildlife conservation perspective. And so, um, Richard Sari, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Robbie. Um, I've been conservation my whole life. I've visited the Kruger Park every single year in my 50 years. <coughs> I'm professional conservationist for 25 years, had great practical experience, um, a lot to do with anti-poaching, but also my passion is about what we would call resource use management. So that would be about how we generate revenue and validate justified protected areas, um, wildlife areas, game ranches, whatever you want to call them. Um, they vary in degrees of wildness, but that's sort of what we know them at as. Um, Oh, we do two main ways. It's the photographic safari industry, and I've worked in that for some of the best companies in Africa for a short while. I've done trails, um, so I'm a qualified field guide. Um, and then I've also been involved with um, managing impacts around what we would call commercial hunting, or if you want to call it trophy hunting or whatever you want to call it, but revenue generation from hunting. So... Yeah, 25 odd years around there now, um, and it's my passion, and I'd say that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> Richard, I would not think that uh, you would be a proponent of don't do anything. Do you think that 
let me ask this very, maybe a blunt, straight up question. And that's what the kind of questions we like on this podcast. Um, what about non like ecotourism? Let's just call it non-consumptive. And I don't want to point the finger at ecotourism at all because they're, they're, they're very good. How about a place where nothing happens? Is wildlife going to be conserved in a place in which nothing happens? Well, there's firstly, no ecotourism, there's no hunting. Uh, firstly, I want to stop you there because this um, fallacy that something's non-consumptive, um, you, you do nothing and you are consumptive. Okay, so in the photographic industry, the game viewing safari areas of Africa, if you're going there for photography, game viewing, whatever, we just generally call them photographic safaris, they are consumptive of water. It's about 400 liters of water per person per day. Um, so in most of Africa, that's drawn from boreholes, or I think in the States you call them wells. But that's about that. So you can do the sums, and I say per person per day. So at some of the luxury lodges, you've got three staff members to one guest, so you can do the sums. So a 60-bed lodge is pulling over a million liters of water a month, so they are consumptive. And then hunting, we know what that is. There's a, there's a little bit of the water because there's fewer people, but then you're consuming an animal, and very important to that is sex, age, how many, all mm -hmm. of those things. Mm -hmm. So nothing going on. Um, you're consuming. If you're not generating revenue, you're going to get what I like to call land use change. Um, and if you go to all the annals of conservation about why species X, Y, and Z, you can name them lions, whatever. You're going to find one common thing. Why is this endangered? Why is it threatened? And you can go through them all. You'll find one common thing. It says land use change. So I love to tease things apart and break it down to its most basic um, facts uh, of what I would call also, and this we also need to define what we would call best available knowledge. And there's a difference mm -hmm. between facts and best available knowledge. If you walk up to a jackalberry tree or an ebony and you see a big mark on the side and you can clearly see it's been made by a tusk and it's pulled off, it means the elephant did that. That's a fact. And it's tracks at the base of the tree. An elephant did that. That's a fact. When you say we um, advocate a stocking rate or this type of land management, holistic rangeland, which is now seems to be the best, that is the best available knowledge, and it may change. Because 20 years ago when I studied rangeland science and all the rest of that, it was different. It's outdated. So mm -hmm. that's the thing. So nothing going on. You're still consuming, um, but you're going to get land use change because the people around it um, <clears throat> are – are dependent on livelihoods to survive. So there is no difference between a community member, a game rancher, a businessman in a city, whatever. Each day, every one of them are trying to put food in their own belly, food on the table, um, hopefully a roof over their head, a house, mm -hmm. um, send kids to school, all of those challenges. So that is very relevant. So People so often think that you know wildlife is 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 charity based and it's going to survive charity based. Well, whatever you're going to do in life, make decisions, management decisions, whatever you've got to you've got to define your context. It's critical, and context of all of this is 7.8 billion humans on the planet. So I give and a growing. talk on responsible resource use, and about a year or so ago. I said 7.7 .7 billion humans, and some smarty in the audience put his hand up, and he said, sorry, 7.8. I said, okay, well, that now just shows you the, the, the severity of the problem. So wherever mm -hmm. you go, that land use better be of value to society. 
<clears throat> and now that's all society. It's not the upper echelon that can afford to be a member of a uh, animal rights extremist NGO or a hunting association or anything like that. It's not that upper echelon. It's everyone. So if you think back to your days in, in Africa and South Africa, what does that represent? So game reserves, um, game ranches. I, I don't like the word game farms because to people from abroad, they hear farm and they think what it could be in the British meadows. And it's very different. A right. game farm, right. if I plonk them down in a game farm, they wouldn't be able to tell the difference between some of our wildest game farms and if I put them in the middle of Kruger National Park. It's no different. Yeah. So I prefer the term conservancies, ranch, farm, don't like that. You know, wildlife conservancies is, I think, what we should call them because they're misrepresented. So nothing going on means land use change because those people will soon see, you know what, um, we've been offered X from a mining uh, company. You know, let, let's go to coal mining. So the land, which is biodiversity, mm -hmm. which is trees, plants, birds, animals, whatever, they decide to put a coal mine. So, so what I was saying is that land use change often goes to things that are very far removed from anything to do with conservation. So conservation, what, it, what we're looking at is sustaining biodiversity. That, that's kind of what it's about. And sustainable use is inherent to conservation. Um, but sustainable use happens the word sustainable is more important in the conservation context because you can't mm -hmm. help using you know you breathe air you consume water you need food where do you source your food from uh, all these concepts which are very we, we we try and discuss dispute argue with complex um issues it's not complex it's very simple if someone says to me you know, I'm defending being a carnival or, or vegan or whatever. So show me a photograph of your land use. So here's a good one. So today I had eggs for breakfast. So those eggs are battery laid. I can take a photograph of what that battery chicken farm looks like. Say I had a game steak today. I can show you a photograph of a totally wild area. And that's what that land use looks like. So it's all about where you choose to and how you use your resources, so where you select them from. And that goes hand in hand down to wildlife management. So we've got to make these areas valuable to all, and valuable to Robbie could be an awesome sunset over the Shingwetsi River in the Kruger Park or a view over the Mara with a right. cold beer in his hand. But that to a hungry person outside the national park, that value could be a pound of elephant meat. Um, Richard, there is a simple as that. I want to make sure that we are not painting something that we are not that we that we are not intending to paint right now, and it's something that I constantly talk about too. In that, to me, when I view wildlife conservation, and I think you would argue the same, is that we essentially look into the toolbox that we have, the toolbox of wildlife management opportunities, wildlife conservation uh, mechanisms there are a gradient of those tools. So you can pull out the hunting tool and the hunting tool gradates from a place where it doesn't work to a place where it's the only tool that I can use. Same thing for ecotourism, same thing for um, 
a game management, game ranch type scenario. Same thing for, um, I'll even throw in the idea of the um, big NGO-backed um, protectionist type scenario. Would you agree with that assessment of wildlife conservation t- tool management? Yeah, but th- those are the viable ones. So there's a lot, but economic sustainability around your model is critical. So you, within those that you've mentioned, you can get in and tease them all apart because they've all got strengths and weaknesses uh, and a very well. Let's tease them apart. Let's tease mm. each one apart from a an, from a eco from an environment. <laughs> That's my stomach telling me my brain that um, anyway. Um, Let's tease them all apart from an economic sustainability perspective. Yeah. So well, we that's just, just wherever you want to start. We can't just leave it there. So the, the best form of management around what we call wicked problems or complex problems is mm-hmm. holistic management. Yep. So humans are really good at simplistic solving of problems such as engineering, medical, those issues. Issues around social aspects and the environment are complex problems they require holistic thinking the basis of holistic thinking if is to basically tease the issue apart from a ecological an economic and a social sustainability perspective and take those right. three so ecologically you, yeah you for instance you would you would look at um photographic safaris so it's pretty obvious it's this is quite interesting i I used to give talks just on the various, you know, having experience with with hunting and management around hunting. I'd give groups to foreigners from universities, and it and it varied in size from twenty to thirty, and even up to one hundred and fifty vets, student vets, once. And I always would want. I started trying to understand my audience as to what was their experience of Africa. And I've done this for nearly 15 years. So I started saying, you want a safari of a lifetime, where would you go in Africa? Um, and, oh, no, I started asking, where have you been in Africa? And then I started to see they're all going to the same destination. So instead of, you know, loading the question, I asked, you want a safari of a lifetime, where do you go? So more than 95% say three destinations. It's the Serengeti system, the Kruger system, and the Okavango system. And then I'd bring up a map to show them where those little spots are on, on Africa. And there's a quite mm-hmm. a nice map of the protected areas. And that's just protected areas. That's not privately owned like as in mm-hmm. South Africa or in the areas of Zim. And it just mm-hmm. shows you how small those are. And that's where people gravitate to. So photographic safaris from an economic perspective requires a sort of, let's just call it a mind-blowing experience. If, um, if you go up to, say, the north of the Kruger, in the Pufuri area. Everyone knows the river and the bush, the scenery. It's awesome. So they're all going to want to flock to the lodges and the camps around mm-hmm. Pufuri. But I say um, there's this little piece of biodiversity uh, 50Ks out the gate. Um, right. Why aren't you going there? Oh, no, 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 no. Photographic fickle. I want to land at this airport. I want easy travel. I want to be able to buy some supplies while I'm there. So all the sort of developed areas of Africa are going to get economic protection through that model of the photographic safari. Then I say, well, who's going to go and protect there? Yeah, I mean, you hear these outcries now about these large elephants that were hunted in Botswana. And you ask... Oh, I've been, I've been in the turmoil for the last three days. No, because but we, I mean... We, we posted any, about it. We podcasted about have it. Have you yeah. been there? 
have you been to those I don't even know what it is. It's NG something, but I've never been there, and um, I haven't an intention to. And I must be honest, and I don't think you have an. You know, so who's going to keep that habitat wild and the wild mm-hmm. animals there with value? Because if you don't, and you, you you come to the rural areas of Africa, and I don't need to explain this to you, but to our listeners, and you go and witness the aftermath of a problem or damage causing elephant that's been destroyed and you watch 200 villages cut that apart and you ask, so when last did you have meat? Two months ago. Now you think you, you know, meat is a very important aspect of survival in these areas. So people understanding that I could get 30 or I don't know what was the case of these elephant, probably more than 50,000 US dollars and the community get the meat of the elephant and the, the elephant, the, the money from it is theirs. I mean, that's a no-brainer for that aspect because it's not an area that is competing from a photographic perspective. And then, as we discussed earlier, the argument there. Let me just, I'll just uh, because you pulled out that example. I didn't listen. The argument there is that NG13 is bordered by NG14. NG14 is a non-consumptive utilization block. There is a citizen-owned ecotourism operation on the Kwando River in NG14. And where this elephant was shot is 40 kilometers away from that area. And so the assumptions across the board, because I don't know, neither do they, of the idea that this elephant could have visited that place, could have generated ecotourism dollars, um, had big migration you know, possibilities into the Delta, um, that was that's one of the arguments that has been laid against not hunting that elephant. Okay, so here's here's some others, and I'm not going to get into what the value of the elephant is, but this is the thing. So I just look at the photographs, and any elephant with tusks that large is, uh, I won't say 50, but it's very close to 50 years of age um, and probably older. So it was a really interesting paper that was released a couple of years by Ian White and... Um, Anthony Hall Martin, and it documented all the jaws um, linked to the ivory recovered of Ellie's around Kruger, and it puts them all on a sliding scale, so you can see age um, to tusk weight, um, and the average of a 50-year-old Kruger elephant is 93 pounds, round about. I just looked on the graph to extrapolate, round about. Um, so a 100-pounder, which those were, is just a little bit more than average. If he's 50 years of age in, in Kruger context, and I'm going to assume the same for Botswana. So Kruger Ellis today, and I'm uh, yeah, I'm a keen follower of, of large tuskers in that Kruger elephant today, most of the big tuskers in recent times looking like that have died 48, 49, 50, 51, round about, let's just say, 50 years of age, ballpark figure. You go to the Lataba Elephant Hall and you're going to see elephants 55 plus. We mm. don't see that very often these days. And it's because cause of death is not starvation. It's mostly killed by bull, other bull. So a bull mm. elephant is physically in his prime, let's say around about 35 to 40, somewhere at that ballpark figure. Um, 50, when you're carrying the big ivory, physically out of his prime, Um he may breed, but he's essentially done with his breeding. Um, because to breed, he's got to go and follow a cow that's in estrus, and then he's got to, f- 
If there's other bullets in attendance, he's got to prove dominance. And those long tusks are no fighting weapon compared to short, sharp, stabbing tusks. So what you often find is if you want to find big tuskers, don't go to the water holes in Kruger and those sort of populated areas around the heat of the day when the other bulls are there because the big bulls are not in attendance. They often go early morning or late, but they're not there because they're scared of those other guys. So mm-hmm. those big tuskers in – well, not big tuskers, but those large tusk elephant in, in Botswana, about 50 years of age, probably got not long to go, not going to do any more breeding, um, essentially. Botswana's got a much greater density of elephant than Kruger. So I say, I'm going to assume that the same applies. Um, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. That that's what's happening there. Um, so, you know, what – He's not going to breed. His genes are in the system. You know, I often show two photographs of the same elephant. Um, you might have been to the Lutaba Elephant Hall and seen that big tusk of yeah. Mandlewe. So there's mm-hmm. two fantastic photographs of him. One is with him, and you can clearly see that ear with that large notch in it. And he is 35 years of age there because the photo was taken in 72. The next photo of him is 92 a year before he died. I think he was 55 then, 56 when he died. So you can extrapolate back to the other photo. He was 35. Um, I'll, I'll quickly share my screen so you can see. Um, but it, it, it's, it's unbelievable. And to see the difference. So, you know, people are assuming, and you, are, you, know, you often ask, I will ask this question. You can see mm-hmm. that's him on the left there, and there he is on the right. Um, and you ask people, which one should we hunt? And they say, no, don't hunt the big tusker, hunt that one. But they are assuming that they're the same age, but they're not. You know. And when you want to make good decisions around hunting, this is that graph I was telling you around. So you can yeah. see there's the average. So if you're hunting on the average or below, then the best genetics are, are not going to be removed before they get to 50. But if you want to see those elephants, you better let those elephants live to 55. So there's Mandleve from, you know, that's a sketch of him, but you can see that ear and you can see the ear there, you know. Yep, yep. And that's the thing. So ecologically, when he's 35, that hunt is not sustainable because his genes are not um, passed on yet. But when he's 55 or 50, he's essentially done most of his breeding. And, and that's the thing that people are, are missing there. So what you do want is you want value to this photographic concession in the Chobe, but 100%. I'm sure they don't want a coal mine as their neighbor. Mm-hmm. You know, even the word, I often say to people, what's the worst, worst, worst hunting you can think of that will turn everyone's stomach? Would you prefer that or a coal mine? And I have never heard the answer, no, we prefer the coal mine because the coal mine is the depletion of all the habitat and the animals. And the reason you're saying that is because, again, it's land use value. Something, something has to happen on the land, right? The, somebody is the going to do yeah. something with yeah. the land, right? So I would be very glad if I was the tourism operator's photographics next to this guy that we had a, a nice, good buffer next to me. I would engage a lot with him to understand which elephant he's hunting. I feel that uh, an elephant, large tustelis, if we understand their ranges and when we do hunt them, we hunt them for very large sums, ecologically it's sustainable. We just then need to determine what is the large sun. And I was 
part of a discussion about 10, 15 years ago where we determined that a hundred pounder someone was willing to pay a mil, a three million US dollars for. That's where we ended mm-hmm. up. Um, mm-hmm. So we're saying that would be an opening bid. So if you could give get that, and, and this is only going to happen when we're all sitting around the table and making the best decisions around our wildlife's value. So that if you got three million for an elephant like that, then you could say, right, we're going to give the photographic guy X, we're going to give Botswana and Parks X, and the hunting operator X, just say a million each for argument's sake. Everyone would be happy. But then where do you spend it? So if it's beachfront cottages and fast cars, difficult to justify in this context. Not that you know putting your kids through a good school wouldn't be a good option, but the majority should be spent back on the area, communities, um, good conservation, anti-poaching, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. science research. Then it gives mm-hmm. this land use, what I would call land use wildlife, great value. Right. And then it's surviving. So I don't 100%. want, even if I'm a ranger in the park, I, I, I don't want anything that is not wildlife land use around me. I want bigger buffers if that is possible. I want good relations with my neighbors. We want to, I understand we're all in the same game. Every few years, they may need to hunt a lion. There's a right lion and a wrong lion, and the same with the Ellies. And I want to know where we're reinvesting it. So we're all making decisions together about the greater area. And then I've got this mm-hmm. great, great buffer around me. Poachers don't get through that. All these sort of things. So there's just so much positivity that comes out of it. Um, and this is based on the best facts we got. So mm-hmm. this is how we need to do it. So if you look... Botswana gets much maligned for their punting and the rest of it. But who are the best elephant conservationists in Africa? They are, because they've got the most elephant. And they give the most land, they dedicate the most land to elephant habitat and elephant existence. So you can't criticize them. But you then, mm-hmm. if you're going to do that, you've got to give that land value. And this is how it comes. So not all areas are going to be great photographic areas, and the photographic guys operate well. Um, you know, next to Kruger Park, there's the APNR reserves. They hunt and run photographic safaris, and it's well managed so that someone on a photographic safari does not see the hunt take place um, when there's a decision made on a specific animal, all are interested in it, so that we have sustainability from a social perspective, an economic perspective, and an ecological perspective. And if you ask the right questions about any hunts, you get the right answers. And I'm not pro-hunting. But I'm not anti-hunting and I'm not pro-photographic and not anti. I'm pro what I would call responsible resource use. And that's sustainability right. from those three perspectives. And, you know, sometimes hunting is the best land use there. And sometimes it's photographic. You know, photographic pro- uh, generates a lot of jobs, probably more jobs in some cases, right. depending on the operation. Um and hunting requires less people to generate the money. So what do you do when you go through like what the world's been through in the last few years of COVID? Where are mm-hmm. all those photographic guests? So say I need 30 guests photographic to generate a hundred thousand US dollars. How many would I need hunting? One or right. so two. Now what's the chance of me get, getting 30 guests in COVID times across here? And what's the chance of me getting two? I mean, it's a no brainer. So sometimes mm-hmm. you've got to adapt and you've got to be flexible to say, I want the land to stay under land use wildlife. And for the next two years, I'm going to be hunting here. And when that closes, I'm going back to my photographic. And you know what? Because I'm hunting, I'm able to, to not dismiss and retrench people. I can keep them on under retainer. So socially, people do better. The environment doesn't suffer because we've got the anti-poaching carrying on because we've got the revenue. 
and most cases those animals were going to die anyway killed by each other but i would you know i so Richard, say people lost touch with the environment that's why we are yeah. irrational in our in our understandings should we let me let me back up a little bit and maybe let's start from the ground up what's the number one thing we should be worried about let's take ecotourism out of the picture let's take hunting out of the picture no overpopulation land use change overpopulation yeah, over can't do much about that and can't do much about that right we can't do it the, the the argument that keeps being thrown in our face is like stop breeding people yeah like okay that's yeah. that's a can't deal with that yeah can't deal with that. So then what's the next thing we can deal with? Prevent land use land change. Use. Keep wildlife, the land use wildlife, valuable. But obviously, we don't compromise on sustainability. And that, mm -hmm. that's are the facts. We've spoken about them. And just go through those principles and you end up with, with, with good answers and good outcomes. But look at all the best areas. Look, if you ask society today, where is the largest wild sable herd in Africa found? Most people don't have a clue. I think yeah, it's privately held. Yeah, it's Mozambique. Yeah. Mark Holland's Zambezi Delta. 30, 20 odd years ago, when he first went there, there were a handful of sable. And just through doing mm -hmm. anti-poaching and building up the resources for the first many years, He's now able to hunt there, and the hunting pays for the conservation. The hunting keeps the hungry people from poaching. Best land use. No one's going there on a photographic safari, you know. So, Richard, maybe this is a um, something that we constantly are striving to be able to do a better job at, which is there seems to be obviously because hunting kills animals. There's always that moniker, right? There's something you'll never be able to shake it. But what are we doing wrong then? What, from a hunting perspective, are we doing wrong in terms of explaining to people the three legs of the stool, which is mm -hmm. the environmental sustainability, the economic sustainability, and the social sustainability? Is it like, let's just use this elephant again as the example. You know, Maybe there shouldn't ever have been a picture put out there of the, of the elephant down with the hunters. That seems to get us in a, in, a, in a scolding pot of water every single time. Robbie, is that trophy shot? I'm, I'm sure you find certain literature offensive. Let's say if someone, let's say pornography. If you go and scratch for it and you find it, why would you, should you complain about it? So if you want to find the photograph of the elephant, you don't want to see it. Why were you trying to find it? You know, these are not public domains. This is Robbie's Facebook page or somewhere. Don't scratch for it. You know, the thing is, not, not everyone wants to be a hunter or can see themselves hunting. Your mother, my mother, they don't see themselves hunting. But sure. humans are very keen to be judgmental on stuff they don't see themselves doing. So rather than asking good questions about the land use and trying to fully understand it, they just don't see themselves hunting, so they cancel it. But... It's quite ironic because a hundred years ago, the hunter was the hero in the village. He determined, you know, his wife was fed, his kids were fed, and mm -hmm. his were the physically fit people. Mm -hmm. He was the hero. Now he's a villain. What's changed? We've lost touch with the environment. How many mm -hmm. people can tell you where the silver side comes from on an animal? And yet they eat mm -hmm. it once a week. And there's this perception that, 
you know, choosing to be a vegan is um, not resulting in the deaths of things. So then I ask you the following. So if you eat oranges, which would be considered vegan food, how is an orange grown? Well, this is it. And you are complicit in all of this. So you want to grow oranges? First, you clear the game on the land. Then you clear the natural habitat. So you're responsible for wildlife holocaust and a habitat holocaust there. Then you plowed up. And plowing is, is deemed one of those activities that generates the most um, release of carbon into the atmosphere. There's a great film called Kiss the Ground. Go and watch that, and it'll show you all of that. But So now you plow. Then you plant your orange trees and the rest of it. Now you get a visit from a vervet monkey or a daiko or whatever. The citrus farmer shoots them. That's what happens. Then your mm -hmm. trees get big enough that the insects start wanting to eat them. So what happens? We put pesticides on them. So that's another insect holocaust. And we carry on shooting monkeys, and then one day we've got a ripe orange, and the farmer picks it, and you eat it, and you're assuming nothing's died. Well, I'm. Mm -hmm. Someone said to me the other day, by proxy, we are all hunters, farmers, and miners, and uh, he's right. That's he right. Farmers and miners by proxy. So. I don't want to do the killing. I don't want to do that. I'm going to buy my meat from a supermarket, which is 99% of people. It's more actually if you want to make good decisions about what food you eat from your own health perspective and also from an environmental perspective. It's not what you're eating. It's where you're sourcing it from. And if you're not sure of that, the listener's not sure, go and do the research. Because this whole debate discussion requires rational thinking. And rational is, is, is clear stuff that can be defended by evidence. So you, you, you want to get the best rational thinking out of yourself, go and find the best available knowledge and facts. And, and you're going to come up with these answers yourself. It, uh, someone who has to kill yourself as a hunter to feed yourself, mm -hmm. myself, I, that is the food I choose because I know what the land use looks like. I know how the animal lived. I know how it died. And I know what I'm giving value to. So the meat I eat is, is hunted wildlife in wildlife areas that are not photographic areas. And I choose them specifically that they're not dual you know, purpose because I want to give that land use value and I want it to stay that way. But I, I'm, I'm involved in what, where my food comes from. But if I didn't want to, and many people are, and I'm not criticizing, sure. but then just say, you know what, I'm going to ask Robbie to go and do it to me because I know he does it in a responsible manner rather than saying, that's awful because end result is you are devaluing wildlife's ability to compete as a land use on the land. And that is the African <laughs> model. And we keep saying it like stuck records all around Africa, people in the know. Let's have the debates. Let's do it out there. You know, let's do it up front. We, we all actually want one thing. We want to see wildlife thrive. We're just passionate about wildlife. And that's me. Um, I'm passionate about wildlife. I'm a bird watcher. I'm, love trees, everything. But to me, it's all the same. And when I do go and hunt, I try and do it as respectfully and responsibly as possible. Do you think that's our downfall, Richard? If you had to take a step back, you, you said earlier, I'm not pro-hunting, I'm not anti-hunting, I'm not pro-ecotourism, not anti-ecotourism. I'm pro-resource use, I'm pro-resource utilization in a responsible, sustainable manner. So if you had to take that step back and look from the outside in, 
to hunting as an industry, where are we failing? If I must be honest, I don't think necessarily hunting as an industry. Let's call it the wildlife industry. 20 years ago is, I think, when we started failing. You know, we all get out there every day and we work eight hours. We're tired. We come home. We eat. We go to sleep. We get up the next day. We do it. We're not communicating in the meantime. We've now entered the age of communication where it's very easy. So an NGO can spend 99% of its time doing the communication and they become the trusted. And the, the conservation authorities and the wildlife authorities and the, the, the real wildlife people, I'm not calling you a hunter. You can be a hunter in that. But the real wildlife authorities are not getting heard because they're not speaking. So mm -hmm. we've got to get out and we've got to change that. We've, we've got to understand the principles of resource use. So when, when you go to a photographic lodge, you, you ask the right questions. And we've got a, some great hunting protocols in the, in the greater Kruger area. We've got great what we'd call lodge operations protocols. And they're the same. It's just a dovetail of each other. And it's the same mm -hmm. principles. It goes about what resources you use, your social principles, your economic, where does the money go, and all of that. So judge them on the same slate. But we need to be aware of all of them. So when I walk into a lodge, you know, I, and I want or I, before I even walk in there, I want to choose which lodge should I go to. You want, to, you want to support the land use that is supporting the society around there and real conservation. So just start asking the right questions. And I think when it comes to the hunting and you see outcries like this recent one, ask the right questions. And you never see the right questions. Bless the journalists. You never see the right questions. They don't know mm -hmm. the right questions. If they want help, we'll tell them. You know, And those are the simple things. How old was it? Where was it? Did you take the bread and butter of the photographic lodge, you know, um, what are you doing with the money? All these things we've spoken about it for the last half an hour now, but, yeah, yeah. but that's it. But the bottom line is land use wildlife is competing with other land uses. And if we value it, we will lose it. And we have, I think we've turned the corner in South Africa. It was a period where we were just growing in, in land under wildlife. It's estimated we got about 19, some say 17 to 19 million hectares of land under wildlife in South Africa. And that would include the park, which is 2 million. That's how much land we've got under wildlife because it was extremely valuable. But if we are reducing the means by which a person can earn a living and do the conservation and the wildlife, they're going to change. And they're going to go back to goats and sheep and possibly something else that they're not going to get hammered on social media doing and that's senseless so let's keep giving wildlife value let's get in the discussions about how we give it value um but the only real two that generate the revenue are those that sell the experience the photographic experience and the hunting experience and yeah that's it for me in a nutshell but it's not that complicated we're thinking way past what's important no you're right and I think you nailed it on the head. And that's one of the things that, you know, we're striving to do in Blood Origins is the whole communications piece. So I'll use this elephant again as an example. Typically, the hunting community would enter into a closet and say, we don't want to talk about it. Mm. We're done. Versus let's get the facts out there. Let's have a conversation about it. Let's have a dialogue about it. Let's talk to the people in the know about it. Mm. Um, I think that's important. Naturally, that comes with 
issues right right now in our media age but it comes with issues because we don't communicate we yeah. haven't communicated we don't tend to like to communicate um things like you know what you do every single day on the ground or lots of other let me just i won't use you as an example lots of people that are in the resource utilization game doing good things for the economic sustainability the social responsibility and the ecological sustainability happen every single day and again, I'll, I'll, I'll look to hunting. It happens every single day. But nobody's talking about it mm. because that's just stock standard. It's what we do every day. Yeah. We, we, we're doing habitat management. We're, meat, we're doing meat drops. We're taking the local tracker's wife to the clinic an hour away because she, she needs medical help. But nobody documents that kind of stuff because why would you? Yeah. Why do you need to? That should happen. But today you do need to. Yeah, we have to. But it's just about mm -hmm. getting the true story out there. Because as wildlife yeah, lovers, yeah. and you come from that background, scientific, wildlife, we're wildlife guys. We don't have a problem mm -hmm. with hunting as long as it's done properly. Mm -hmm. No, exactly. As long as it's done properly. I couldn't say that any better. And ask the tough questions. We have to be able to answer the tough questions. Did you do it properly? Well, we was that appropriate? We can to define that those categories, and we do a lot of the time. And it's just about justification. But it communication is long overdue, and we we just got to do it. So we got to keep speaking when asked to answer the questions. There's nothing to hide, and if the, if someone doesn't agree, let's have a debate about it. Let's bring the facts to the table. Yeah, hundred percent. We don't want to see wildlife guys. So, exactly. We, need to stop we don't want to see wildlife go. So let's let's utilize all the tools in the toolbox, mm. all of which need to be looked at exactly responsibly. And don't dictate to the landowner. The landowner will choose the one that works best in that area naturally. Simple. Mm -hmm. People have done it in South Africa when from the emergence of, of of game ranching and you know conservancies, say thirty years ago when it really took off till now. Well, not now, let's say 10, 15 years ago. And then things started to tighten up. And that shouldn't happen. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Well, Richard, it's been amazing. Um, yeah, I, I guess, you know, we could talk for hours. Mm. Um, and uh, maybe what I will do in the future, um, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Maybe in the future when a controversy comes up like this elephant, maybe it's something that we can hash out. Yeah, let's know, you know, obviously, the good and the just bad. unpack it and uh, good, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And because I think people want to have a, yeah. you know, and we try to stay, again, we're, yes, we want to convey the truth about hunting from a blood origins perspective. Um, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. Because we're not a panacea. We're not a silver bullet. We are again a tool that is that works very, very, very well mm. in a lot of places. But and at the end of the day, we all want wildlife. We want better wildlife. We want more healthier wildlife. We want sustainable wildlife. And so we have to be stewards of that wildlife and make sure that it's being done correctly. Exactly. Get up every day and fight for that. Exactly. It's actually, the biggest exactly. threat to wildlife is the devaluation of it. Not poaching, not other stuff. Just the devaluation of it as a viable land use. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Well said. Good. Richard, thank you, my man. Pleasure, Robbie. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.